The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor with no day-to-day -day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership. The limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The limited partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for limited partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Brian Burke. So he's the CEO of Praxis Capital. He's been there for over 20 years and the author of The Hands-Off Investor, which I, I've read. And I think it's a fantastic book. And I think it's right on with what we're talking about here on the show. But I'll turn it over to Brian. Brian, welcome to the show. Jake, thanks for having me on. And I, I'm glad to hear you were able to suffer through all 350 pages of The Hands-Off Investor. Thanks for taking the time. <laughs> oh, man, it's right up my alley. I'm uh, counting. I'm a CPA by training. I love the technicalities. I think those are the things that make it's the nuances and the technicalities that really make this thing work. Funny you say that because we you know writing this book was a bit of a challenge because you know you've got to try to appeal to people who really want to understand the granularity of how numbers work in a passive real estate investment. Yet at the same time, you don't want to put to sleep the people that just kind of want an overview. That was an interesting uh, tightrope to walk, I must admit. Yeah. Did you get a lot of feedback on that along the way trying to figure out like where, where was the line? I, I didn't quite so much. I tried to make it up on my own, but uh, the feedback that I got, it was interesting because I had a lot of uh, people review this book before we published it. And I had the technical ones who said it was so great because they had all the technical detail. And I had the high level overview types uh, that said that everything they wanted to read was there. So I, I felt like uh, I might've struck at least close to the balance. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I thought it was great. So, And it's definitely something I would recommend to you, my listener, go out there and read it. It's what you need to know. And it's not a complex business, but there are nuances and you have to do it right. And you have to work with the right people. But we'll get to that in a second. Brian, you've been doing this for two, three decades now. I'd love to give my audience a little bit of a background on who you are. So then we can kind of dive into like why you wrote the book and the impetus and, and some of the stories that you've got. But if, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of your journey. Yeah. My journey started as a house flipper uh, 33 years ago uh, when I was 20 years old and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and made my first real estate investment by buying a, what at that time was intended to be a rental property with no money down because I read a book saying that you could buy real estate with no money down. And I thought that describes me. I have no money. So uh, <laughs> this is perfect. So I bought my first property and never looked back. Uh, you know, 30 years later, I'm still at it, but you know, not so much in the house flipping side. Our business grew over the years when the great financial collapse happened in the mid to late 2000s. We uh, expanded our business exponentially on the house flipping side. We were doing, you know, 100 houses a year and bought a massive rental portfolio of uh, over 110 houses in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, kind of at the bottom of the market. And then we'd raised a lot of money from investors to make all of this stuff happen. And, you know, that came to the realization that eventually all these foreclosures we're buying are going to vanish. All these defaulted loans are going to work their way through. And, you know, then what? What are we going to do to keep in 
investors happy or provide them with alternative investments after uh, this is all over with. And multifamily was a business I got into about 20 years ago when I made my first personal multifamily investment via a 1031 exchange from some of my rental properties. And so I decided that maybe we should look at focusing more on the multi side because it was more scalable and more sustainable versus house flipping, which comes and goes in waves. So uh, we did that and never looked back. We've uh, done over 4,000 units since making that decision. And uh, it's been a great ride. We've raised over $200 million from passive investors and uh, never lost a nickel of investor principles. So certainly something to be proud of. Yeah, that's, that's a great story, right? And I think that when we think about what is the objective number one is don't lose money. And it's- And objective right. number two is see objective number one. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, it's surprising how risky people will get. Well, I think we come back to it like this market where things are so moving so fast. The market's so hot. Cap rates are compressed so tight. You know, I look at a lot of deals and there's a lot of deals I'm just totally not interested in, right? Because I can tell that, you know, people are just trying to like churn. Let's get back to the book. Tell me, why'd you write the book? I wrote the book because obviously through this course of business, we talked to a lot of investors. I hear their questions. After a period of time, I realized that the investors were asking us, all the wrong questions. The questions that were important were completely being ignored. And the ones didn't matter at all were the ones people seem to be so focused on. So in trying to figure out why that was, I realized that there's no source or resource out there for investors to learn, passive investors to learn how to invest in passive real estate syndications. You know, there's plenty of books out there that'll teach you how to buy real estate for your own account, but there's nothing out there that really teaches you how to invest passively. Uh, this point was driven home to me about 15 years ago, I guess uh, maybe closer to 12 years ago, a friend of mine had invested in a passive real estate syndication. She was a, a grocery clerk who had bought a fourplex early on in her career, and it just had appreciated in value tremendously. And for a grocery clerk, you know, that's a significant amount of money. She sold the property in a 1031 exchange and invested all of the proceeds into a passive real estate syndication that was organized as a tenants and common structure. Commerce used to be known as ticks. And the tick allowed sponsor to accept 1031 exchange money where a conventional passive real estate syndication would not allow for that. So, you know, wanting to do this 1031 exchange, this is the investment route she chose to take. She invested all of her money in this thing. And uh, lo and behold, two years later, the thing goes belly up. It was revealed that the sponsor of that uh, investment was a convicted felon. Uh, he had stolen all of the money out of the accounts and basically flew the coup and left the investors hanging for millions and millions of dollars lost investor principal just gone into the wind. The, uh, the investment properties all went into foreclosure, were taken back by banks. The investors recovered nothing. And my friend lost her entire life savings. So instead of being fully set up for retirement, instead she's driving for a rideshare service just to put food on the table. And I thought if I could just somehow prevent that from happening to one person, then writing this book would be worth it. And that's what I set out to do was to teach passive investors how to properly think about their passive investing strategy, find the right investments to invest in, and more importantly, how to find the right sponsors to invest with. That's a powerful story. When you think about, right, there's a lot of people that can talk the talk the best are the, the slipperiest folks out there, right? You know, they've got the shiniest presentation, everything looks great, but how do you dig in and, and 
really get to the next level and understand who you're working with, right? Because I mean, there's folks like me who grew up as a CPA, right? It might just be a little harder for us to convey our enthusiasm. The excitement we have about an opportunity might come off a little bit flat, but I guess along those lines, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see folks making when they're looking or they start making passive investments? One of the biggest mistakes is, uh, and this was somewhat started by this crowdfunding trend. A few years ago, websites came up onto the scene that would offer investment opportunities, kind of like shopping on Amazon, put in your criteria and bam, up on the web page comes a menu of 15 different things you can invest in. And people have this tendency to look through the list and scroll through and find the one they want and go, aha, that's the one. It has the highest projected return. And that's what I want. I want the most money for investment. So I'm going to invest in the one with the highest return. And they would pick that one. And that's how they would choose. Could be a life-changing mistake. Reason that return might be so high is the sponsor might have no idea what they're doing and completely misunderwrote the returns. And is just throwing numbers out there. It could be somebody that, uh, you know, like in the case of my friend is a criminal, you know, is just trying to attract investments, you know, and make off with the money. I mean, there's no way to know for sure. So people weren't doing their due diligence. And that's probably turned out to be the biggest mistake. And people have lost a lot of money by investing just with the wrong people. It could have been the right deal, but managed by the wrong people that think can go belly up. You think about folks investing money, right? Like a lot of folks grew up, they got a 401k with their company, maybe they left and they just handed it over to an advisor. And like all things considered, you know, the market's gone up and they've just earned money. And there's really hasn't been a whole lot of diligence. There's, there's an expectation that if you have a financial advisor, they've been through some course, there's some sort of certification. They know what they're talking about. And then I think that a lot of times that attitude is pervasive and kind of carries on when you start looking at like alternative investments. And, you know, there is, you know, a sense of, oh, okay, well, you're in the business. You know what you're doing. Like I saw your deck. It looks good. Let's just go there. And I think, yes, the idea is to be passive, to be hands-off, right? This is not to create another job, but at the same time, like you do have to do a lot of work on the front end to know that you're getting it right. That's exactly what your book's talking about. Well, I mean, the book is how to invest passively in real estate. It's the subtitle of the book is investing in passive real estate syndications, right? Because people say, I want to be a passive investor. There's a difference between being a passive investor and investing in passive real estate syndications. And that may seem like a subtle sentence, but the reality is, is that syndications are meant to be passive. You're an investor, you have no control over the investment, but from the investor's point of view, it's anything but passive when you're in the selection process. You need to be a very active participant in the process when you're deciding who you want to invest with before you turn passive. And so it's difficult because people get into passive investing because they want to be passive, right? They don't want to do all this work or otherwise they'd go buy real estate themselves. But there is a payoff. If you can invest with the right person, can do your due diligence and be active in the beginning, you know, you can kind of turn that around and turn more passive uh, once you've done all that homework and made a good selection. You know, you still have to watch it, make sure that, you know, the reports are making sense and, and all that and ask questions when appropriate, but got to be prepared to do a little bit of work up front. I mean, I think I think the work is, the work up front is everything. So let's talk about that a little bit. What was the first step for somebody that is looking to put their money to work in a syndication? What would their first step to be to find the right partner? It's a very good way to ask that question, find the right partner, because generally what most people ask when they say, you know, I want to invest passively, how do I find the right deal to invest? 
invest in? And you know, that's 100% the wrong question. It's not about finding deals to invest in. It's about finding the right partners to invest with. It's a significant distinction because when you're thinking about who you're investing with, your due diligence completely changes from what you're investing in, right? That's a different set of due diligence. But that is really the way to get started. The way to get started as a passive investor is to find the right groups to invest with, the right company, the right people. Do your homework, make sure that you're very comfortable with them. And then once you've checked the box, so to speak, and you've determined that they're the right people for you, then the next step is when they present you with an opportunity to invest in, you do your due diligence on that particular offering and make sure that that checks all of your boxes. But to start with, you've got to make sure that that you've got the right partners. And the questions you want to be asking are questions along the line of how long have you been doing this? What's your track record look like? Can you document, you know, do you have some documentation I can look at related to your track record? How many losses have you had? What did you guys do about it? All about trying to determine two things. One is their history and their ability as their capability as operators. And the second is their moral character, because at the end of the day, their moral character really is the glue that holds everything together. They could be the best operator in the world, but if they're a crook, they're going to steal your money. They're going to steal your money. So knowing that uh, you have someone trustworthy is kind of the other big box you got to check. So the main two boxes are character and track record slash experience. I appreciate you calling me out really at the beginning of this conversation about, I almost take for granted that we're starting with who, right? In this journey. And for those of you who are listening, this is also a cheat for me, the podcast, right? I I talk to people all of the time. There's a selfish reason is that like, I want to make connections with the right people in this industry. And and the other point, which I think kind of goes back to your original concept of you're a house flipper. So that's how I started, you know, my business. Well, I started with some real estate investments, but got into flipping during financial crisis started to turn because that's where it was, right? It wasn't sitting around holding it. It was like everything was moving. But you know, when we look at getting into passive investments with syndications, I can get the same returns without all of that headache. It's a lot of work to flip a house. It's a lot of work to put all those things together. And if you think that like going into real estate can be a financial boon to you, the answer is it's, you're right. But like you, you see these shows where they're flipping houses in a week, it doesn't work that way. But can I leverage somebody else's time that's doing a great job to get the same returns and be passive? The answer is yes, right? And that's the whole purpose of this, you know, investing in a syndication, but you got to do a lot of diligence on the front end. I think maybe to your point as well, is that once you find the right people, you don't have to invest in everything they do. You might say like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to get into off, right? I want to do multifamily or like, I want to diversify a little bit. I need to look at somebody else that does a different type of property. But once you find the right people to work with, I wouldn't say your work is done, but it's not nearly as hard. You know, there's an initial left to get into this thing. Is that is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement. Another thing you said there that I think is key is you said, find the right people to work with. And sometimes people get so locked up in thinking, you know, maybe they want to find the right person instead of the right people where they want to invest in only one group. I'm a strong proponent of eliminating to the extent possible any single point of failure. And if you recall back to my story about my friend, the grocery clerk, she invested all of her money with one operator in one project. So there's multiple single points of failure. You have a single point of failure that you're invested with one operator. You have a single point of failure that you're invested in one real estate asset. You have the single point of failure that you're invested in one geographical market. And you have the single point of failure that you're invested in one particular sector, which that one happened to be senior housing. So, you know, if you have passive investing strategy, uh, which you should have, if you're considering becoming a passive investor in real estate syndications, that would mean that your goal should also 
also be to try to eliminate, or at least to the extent possible, minimize single points of failure. That might mean that you'd be investing with multiple sponsors rather than putting all your money with only one. It might mean that uh, when you invest with one sponsor, you might invest in a fund that acquires multiple assets instead of just one. It might mean that you invest in multiple deals with that sponsor that are in multiple geographic locations. I would say to a lesser extent, investing with one sponsor in multiple asset classes, that's a little bit more dangerous because I feel that you really want to invest with people that are experts in their field. And you know, just because you're great at multifamily doesn't mean you're you know the best office operator or best hotelier or uh, or whatever other type of real estate or self storage or whatever. So you know that might mean you want to invest with a self storage operator. You might want to invest with an office operator and a hotel operator if you're so inclined to believe in those particular sectors and feel that you want to have exposure to them and diversify out of not just simply investing in residential assets. So uh, you know I feel that you know it's really important for people to spread their risk around. Business seems to be a Approach backwards by passive investors is they want to look for uh, maximizing return rather than minimizing risk. To an extent, I understand that, but you can't make any money at all if you lose all of it. So, uh, you know, mitigating your risk first and foremost is, I feel, the best strategy, and then let the returns fall where they may. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really great point. You know, both of us we've lived through the cycle, 2008, 2009 cycle. Buying properties was a great great time to buy property, owning properties, holding properties, having acquired properties just before, you know, the downturn was very stressful. And there was a massive movement in values of properties. And there was strategies and backup plans and backup backup plans that had to go into effect to get through that. And I think that in a current environment, everything seems like it's pointed up. And I think that to your point about investing with specialists is that I think you want to be with people that have been there and kind of live through some of the cycles. And then two, understanding the nuances of the deal and having some conservatism in, in the projections, because when these numbers get big, small movements and projections or a little bit of optimism in the right wrong places can make a return look great on paper. But the reality is, is that, you know, you're cutting it to the core and everything has to work perfectly. And we all know that that's not the way the world works. Yeah. One of the concepts in the book relates to, uh, you know, looking into the experience of the sponsor and experience includes multiple facets. If they're investing in apartment buildings, you want to know if they have experience in apartment buildings. If they're investing in Chicago, Illinois, you want to know they have some experience in Chicago, Illinois. At the same time, you also want to look for experience like market market cycle experience. That means, uh, have they been through and survived a market cycle? If they've been in business for less than you know 10 or 12 years, they've only seen an up market for their entire career. And they don't know how to navigate an adverse market. And I think it's important, especially as this up market gets more and more mature, the experience of having survived an adverse cycle becomes increasingly valuable uh, as another adverse market cycle uh, gets closer to uh, rendering its ugly head. Uh, and then another component of experience that I think people need to consider that oftentimes they don't consider in addition to you know all these other ones we've already laid out is full cycle experience. And that means that they've actually bought, successfully managed and sold and delivered a return and return capital on real estate. You'd be amazed how many people are raising money for deals and they've never successfully round-tripped 
anything. So, you know, I like to say that they've been proven that they know how to take off and maybe even fly the plane, but they haven't proven that they can land. And, you know, in order to successfully complete a trip, you need to do all of those things. And so you want someone that's proven to be able to have done all of those things. That's the other point, right? Like your investments are liquid. Three, five, seven years might be the, the cycle that you're playing with. And that's a long time, especially given where we are in, in the market cycle. What's it going to look like three, five, seven years from now? So, you know, having the maturity of how are you going to get there, right? And what's it going to look like on the backside and, and planning for changes and cap rates decompressing and, and things looking different. Brian, I guess any other tips, really hot button items that, that a SLP should be looking for in deals? You know, I'll tell you one of the ones that cracks me up because people place extraordinarily high amount of emphasis on so-called skin in the game, but they mismeasure it. So one of the things that I've heard all too often out there is investors ask sponsors, how much money are you putting in the deal? Because they want to know that sponsor is eating what they kill, that they have skin in the game, et cetera. And I've heard too many passive investors say that if the sponsor is putting in X number of dollars or X percent of the capital, that checks all the boxes for them. They're good enough and ready to go. They'll invest. Uh, if the sponsor is not putting in uh, whatever it is that meets that threshold, then they fail and they don't invest. In my opinion, one of the most overemphasized or overly relied upon measurements, uh, but it's also one of those things that people measure not because it's important, but it's important because they can measure it. It's just a completely wrong way of looking at things. And, uh, you know, I would suggest to people to place less emphasis on how much money the sponsor is putting into the deal and more emphasis on that sponsor's track record, their experience, their diversification level, and all those other things, and not let that other stuff slide just because the sponsor is putting money into the deal. And that may sound counterintuitive, but let me put it this way. If the sponsor is a crook, it doesn't matter how much money they're putting into the deal. They can raid the bank account, take out every dollar, they put in before they flee to Jamaica or wherever it is that they go to hide from you. So their character is equally important. You cannot overlook all the other factors because you check one box. You have to look at the totality of the circumstance. To me, a greater degree of skin in the game is achieved from someone who has a long track record that they don't want to destroy, a brand that they need to protect. In other words, they can't just you know pop up six months later under a new flag and call themselves something different and start attracting capital again, everybody would know who you are and what you did. Uh, so you can't get away with that. Now you have to defend your investors to the grave because uh, if you screw it up, you're finished. To me, those things are more important elements of skin in the game than you know any number of dollars. And another good one is uh, who's guaranteeing the loan? You know, Even non-recourse loans require carve-out guarantor for bad boy access such as fraud and a bunch of other things, who is signing that covenant? Uh, oftentimes you'll find sponsors are hiring that function out by bringing in some wealthy person with a big balance sheet, giving them some minute piece of the deal or some fee in exchange for signing on the loan carve out. And the sponsor has essentially no obligation. Therefore, even the debt lender can't come after the sponsor. And so if the sponsor isn't signing on their own carve out guarantees, that would be to me a red flag and a lack of skin in the game. If you are concerned, 
concerned about skin in the game, think about it not just as dollars, but as about a whole totality of the circumstances when you're considering who really has skin in the game. That's a fantastic point, right? It's rarely emphasized that way. And then, you know, the other side of that coin too is that the investment, like we mentioned before, three, five, seven years long, how is that asset going to be managed during that period, right? Like those are, these are questions that I'm asking is that, okay, fine. Like we put our money in, like the assets out there, it's working. How are you going to maintain that through that period? You know, like what's that operating cycle look like? Is what's the asset management fee? Is it enough, right? Because I know people like play with points here and there to make their deals look a little bit more, I guess, palatable. But at the same time, I just want to know that it's, you know, that there's enough money basically set aside through the process to watch it for the whole period. Well, you want your sponsor to be worried about your investment, not worried about how they're going to make their own house payment. So That's certainly right. you do want uh, their attention focused. And, and that means that you know, you want to make sure that they're fairly compensated and people do tend to try to want to grind on fees and that sort of stuff, which is the wrong emphasis, in my opinion. They really need to be more concerned about, as you said, how that asset's going to be managed. It's interesting how the emphasis by a lot of sponsors seems to be so focused on deal aspects, acquiring and, oh, we have this great chain of off-market deals. We got this deal flow and that deal flow and, you know, and everything else. But the, you know, that process in the life cycle of an investment takes you know, weeks to months versus the operation and ownership aspect, which takes months to years to decades. And that's really where the rubber meets the road and their ability to manage that asset is extremely important. And this, you know, comes back to this money in the deal thing. Again, I don't need to beat this dead horse, but it, it, it's comical when people say that, you know, having money in the deal means that they're going to manage the property better because they're going to be looking after their own dollars. Well, just simply not true. Uh, if they're inept, incapable, operators, they're going to screw up their own investment just as much as they're going to screw up yours. If they're unscrupulous, they're going to make sure they get paid and take their money out and let you suffer the consequences anyway. So that's not enough. Can't say that that's enough. You really have to look at their experience and uh, their operating track record to understand how well they not only operate, but how they manage adversity. You know, and also this is a one that's harder to quantify, but but no less important is how do they communicate that adversity? And when things go wrong, does this sponsor have a track record of telling people about it or sweeping it under the rug and hoping no one notices, you know, and you'd be surprised. There's a vast array of uh, variation from sponsor to sponsor in that regard. I heard that over and over again, that the most probably underappreciated part of a business for a sponsor is investor relations. And it's how you communicate, how often you communicate, what you're communicating. And bad news is never great, right? But if you just tend to want to sweep it under the rug, because like, oh, next month will be better. Next quarter will be better. We'll just deal with it. You know, investors are tolerant of bad news if you tell them, but they're going to be a lot less tolerant and their confidence in you is going to be shaken if they don't find out about something until a month, quarter, whatever your next reporting cycle is when you should have known early. Because then then they're thinking, what else are you not telling me? Or they don't find out at all. I mean, there are sponsors that are out there that will just simply make distributions to investors out of reserve cash that was supposed to be used for property renovations just to sweep under the rug, uh, you know, underperformance at the asset level. You know, it's 
really bad news because the business plan just ends up in a tailspin and a vicious spiral. Now, oftentimes those groups will get bailed out by an increasing rising market. If the market turned while that was going on, they'd be in a world of hurt and pro- probably facing some serious investor losses and a lot of really upset people. So every sponsor, no matter how good they are and no matter how good their judgment is and how long they've been doing this, is going to get deals that don't go according to plan. It's just going to happen. That's part of life and no one is exempt from that. The question comes down to, are they honest about it? Do they tell the investors, hey, we're not distributing any money because this is what's happening right now and things are not going according to plan and this is what we're doing to try to rectify the situation. That's what investors want to hear. Not, oh yeah, everything's going great and here's your 8% distribution uh, on a property that's actually negative cash flow. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Brian. I really appreciate you. And, And if you take away one thing from this conversation, it's starting with the right people finding the right folks to invest with. We kind of joked about it at the beginning of the conversation, but the book is 300 pages, right? It's not, you don't just go throw your money at somebody and walk away and then expect big returns. There's some work to be done, but the path has already been trod, right? This is not new. And there's a lot of opportunity and a lot of great people to work with out there. You just have to find them. And it's going to take a little bit of work on the front end. But Brian, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Jake. Really appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.